Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our online audiences uh, for this live stream, one of over 600 that the uh, Commonwealth Club has done since uh, the pandemic started, where we bring you our usual speakers, but direct to you by video um, due to the fact uh, that we cannot have live audiences here. Uh, Today, we're going to be speaking with George McCary, um, the author of A Fear and Strangers, A History of Xenophobia, a very interesting uh, explanation of the history of the idea of xenophobia. Um, Of course, uh, xenophobia has gone on forever, um, for all the times that human beings have been around. Um, And while we're getting our video back, I think I'll give you a little bit of a preview of what's going on um, in the book. So one of the things that George McCary talks about, and uh, George is uh, at the uh, Weill Cornell Medical College in Manhattan um, and uh, in the Division of Psychiatry as well. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is how at the beginning of time, um, not the beginning of time, but the beginning of of human uh, experience, people, you know, were either settled in locations and then when strangers came in, they disrupted things. Or they were strangers themselves and they would go to a new place and they'd be shunned. So both of those experiences have made us very, very wary about um, strangers. Now, George, welcome back. (laughs) Um, We lost you on our video wall for a little while. I was just uh, laying up the the origin of your book, um, talking about how People in ancient times, of course, either they were settled, but then when strangers came, that was uh, disruptive, or they themselves moved to a new location and they were the strangers and were shunned by people. Um, and you talked, so xenophobia has been there forever, but you basically wanted to pick up a, a place to start talking about it from an intellectual idea point of view, the history of ideas. And you said, when did we first start thinking that this wasn't a good idea, that this was irrational to just be afraid of strangers? So why don't you start with that? And I told them all about you while you were gone. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you very much to the Commonwealth Club, and thank you, George, for having me. Um, delighted to be here. Yeah, the, when I was first interested in the subject, uh, you know, there were a number of pointers that said, well, this is eternal, and it's ubiquitous. Uh, it's, you know, uh, something that people thought started in antiquity, and that's when it, the, the, the xenophobia was coined in ancient Greece. Uh, and that correlated very well with the kind of more biological assumptions that said, like, humans are just built to do this. We've evolved so that it has been uh, adaptive to uh, attack strangers, because otherwise they might attack you. Uh all of that broke down, you know, and as I started to look at it, that's when my mind kind of exploded because none of that turned out to be so simple or so true. One is the word didn't come from antiquity. And if strangers as enemies is a very, very old uh, equation that goes back to the beginning of, of the human record, uh, as Stephen Jay Gould and other people have pointed out, it was even more important adaptively to understand when to cooperate with strangers. Mm -hmm. That's the only way you build big, powerful societies. And so this notion that it was just an evolutionary thing, that it was ancient, 
both of those kind of exploded. And I then I was in the hunt because then the question is, well, what's at stake here? And when did this concept and word emerge? Uh, and uh, the way I framed the question was like, I'm not going to try to go back and retrospectively diagnose xenophobic experiences back through time. That would be a universal library kind of Borgesian kind of yeah. uh, uh, unending story. I want to understand when people started to think it was phobic, that mm. is to say, irrational. And that took me on a very different trajectory that ended up having a very specific story uh, and uh, one very close to our time. Yeah, and uh, you pick, uh, among other things, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, who are at the center of so much um, in, in our Western history. So yeah. why, don't, why don't you talk about how that came about? What, 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 what pre- made them do in a society that was, it, it wasn't egalitarian and everything, but it was relatively tolerant for the time, um, and then it became relatively intolerant? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, basically I had two points in time that I had to consider. One is as far back as we possibly know when strangers were enemies. And then I discovered that xenophobia as a term was coined at the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. And what I say is like, you know, this is a paradigm, stranger equals enemy, that is cracking along the way until it ultimately cracks in the 1880s. And this term says it is maybe a pathology to hate strangers. Mm -hmm. How do I tell that story? Well, I started with early modern uh, European culture since the term emerged in Europe, France and England, and the first great Spanish, the first great empire, the first empire where the sun never set was Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what I looked at was how their uh, attempts to both unify internally a nation and then pacify externally colonies were both... Uh, uh, ones that would become paradigmatic. And uh, what you see internally in Spain is uh, when Ferdinand and Isabel take over the country, it is the least Christian country in Europe. Mm-hmm. The Moors have run this country for a long time. There's a lot of Jews in this country, and they declare kind of overnight that we're going to be the most Christian country in Europe. And they take the Inquisition and are constantly unifying a in-group by attacking quite viciously out-groups. So we see that dynamic play out, of course, today. And that becomes a a way of managing internal dissent by creating uh, marginalized outsiders who then are attacked as being not one of us. The irony was these people were trying to create a unified Christian Spain come across like this new world where it is completely mind-blowing. These people are from a, you know, they're not on a map. And so then I talk about, well, what, what, what do you do here? And uh, how the, you know, regimes of terror that, that occurred in the new world were uh, both, unfortunately, paradigms for what would happen with colonialism, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the pushback, which came from uh, a number of people uh, who started to say that this is a kind of crime against humanity, Mm -hmm. that these uh, Indians uh, are just as human as us. And then this, you know, kind of, uh, I think, heroic figure, uh, Las Casas, who says, actually, they're more 
Christian than the Spaniards who are murdering them. If you read the good book, these people actually are following it. So there's a lot in the story of Spain that shows like that, that the way that this became a uh, really toxic problem and some of the pushback against it. One of the fascinating parts about, you know, the details you put in your book is that um, it, it was sort of the first big European attempt at, at both colonialism and, and at uh, internal uh, dissension, uh, getting rid of it. Um, the, the Jews were kicked out. Uh, the Moors were pushed back to, to North Africa. Um, and as you said, it had been going on for centuries. The, the Moors had run uh, this place for four or five or six hundred years already. Um, right. What, what's interesting is that the Inquisition, you know, that has such this terrible reputation, what's the final number of victims of, of the Inquisition over maybe first two centuries or something like that? It's like 15,000, I think, was the number used in your book. So, so uh, future European societies certainly improved upon that number um, of, yeah. of, of how many. But the Inquisition still holds this terror um, in our minds as if it were the worst uh, and I, I find that that part of it interesting. The other part that I thought was very interesting was you talked about how once once one had to subjugate the Indians, uh, they were considered subhuman. This is another ancient idea of of how to deal with other people. Um, yeah. And the irony is that the Spanish, after they had done it and after they'd done the Inquisition, by the other Europeans were considered sub-European or sub, you know, they, they weren't as good as the rest of us because they did this terrible thing. Right. Yeah. So no, the same right. thing was put back on him. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea that um, uh, peep foreigners were subhuman, unfortunately, goes back to Aristotle. Mm-hmm. And Aristotle had this notion that uh, they were therefore it was fair to uh, subjugate them, and that was cited again and again in uh, the New World uh, by by the Spanish. Uh, you know, interestingly, uh, Isabella did not want to have slavery, uh, and therefore there was a kind of indentured servitude. She was afraid that essentially if these people had slaves, they would have little armies and that they might revolt against her, at least in part. She also might have, uh, you know, I, I don't want to take away any any possible uh, uh, goodness that, that, might, that might have <laughs> generated that thought as well. Yeah. So, yes, this notion that foreigners are subhuman it's an ancient Greek idea, uh, at least. I'm sure other cultures have it. And it justified uh, uh, domination. Uh, you know, we can see the, the traces of that uh, when we go to the civilizing mission that the French would talk about, uh, or, you know, the, the many of the justifications, uh, for instance, some of the most egregious by, you know, King Leopold in what he called the Free Congo State, which others said was the mm-hmm. Congo Slave State, mm-hmm. Uh where he spoke about in highfalutin terms about bringing light and reason and God to these subhumans while all the while in that case creating uh, and, and committing a genocide. Interestingly there, what stopped him was Kodak uh, were, 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 were pictures. Um, and when we talk about the internet now and how it's, it's going to have an effect on things, but I just talk about how, I mean, cause that's, People were talking about how bad it was, but when the pictures came back. The pictures came back, and, you know, I think that there was a a drip, drip, drip of people who were talking about, um, you can't believe what's happening there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I talk, of course, about Joseph Conrad, uh, whose heart of darkness uh, was uh, very compelling as a work of fiction. 
that then ramified with Roger Casement, who went there and came back with a report that really documented uh, the kind of atrocities that were happening there. And, uh, you know, if World War I was kind of the wake-up call about ultranationalism, uh, the genocide in the Congo was uh, a wake-up call for a lot of people. There started to be uh, associations uh, for the uh, aid of, of Congo that, that sprung out around the world. And uh, it, 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 you know, alerted people to a problem that unfortunately was going to happen again. And you, you, you talk about this a lot in your book. I mean, there's a reaction to it, too. And, and uh, so we have this uh, compelling history of being afraid of strangers and dealing with strangers badly. But there, there's also a contrary uh, compassion for total strangers who are suffering and that people all around the world reacted. So that, that yeah. happened at the time of the Congo as well. And, uh, and why don't you talk about that? Because these, these two yeah. things play all the time in history. And Well, they, they play in history, absolutely. And they actually uh, play in this very term, xenophobia. I mean, the, the, the shocking thing for me was that I was in search of what I thought was a you know, high-minded ethical principle And what I discovered was that xenophobia went viral at a very particular moment in France in 1900 in a racist way. Mm -hmm. It was used to actually justify conquest of Easterners, primitive people. It was used at the time in the, for the boxers in the boxer revolt in China mm -hmm. to say, these people don't really have a legitimate grievance They are racially inferior, and they hold to the primitive equation of strangers are enemies. So mm -hmm. they attack all the strangers that are in China. Well, P.S., there were a lot of strangers in China because there, there were multiple colonies uh, of Westerners who were trying to nibble away at that collapsing empire. Mm -hmm. So the first great explosion of the term xenophobia is where it goes to all the colonies, where they all start to worry that their Easterners might have the same racial xenophobia. And what you see eventually is pushback, what you're saying, mm -hmm. this pushback by goodwilled people who, say, who call nonsense mm -hmm. and say, this is actually what we do. This xenophobic use of xenophobia mm -hmm. becomes this kind of Orwellian term that gets flipped 180 degrees by liberals who believe in toleration, by socialists who believe in brotherhood, and say, you know what, this isn't about what they do to us. This is about what we're doing to them. And P.S., if you think it's racial, how come the guy next door in the East End of London is doing it? And how come the guy next door in Chicago or upstate New York or Mississippi is doing it? Mm -hmm. And so there was this kind of contest of ideas where the racialized notion of xenophobia collapses, and it becomes this kind of ethical principle of self-reflection. So in a way, that's an uplifting story. It's about mm -hmm. a kind of cultural evolution by which we come to recognize that the distortions of that early notion of xenophobia and latch on to uh, an ethical principle that requires us to reflect upon ourselves and our own biases. Well, one of the, one of the of course, worst examples is the Holocaust from World War II, and I think you lead up to it very uh, excellent clarifying way um, that is you talk about how the, the, there was a lot of ideas in in the marketplace of ideas 
there was the idea of social Darwinism, you know, the, the survival of the fittest sort of pushed uh, back. So we should, whoever can win is the fittest. That's, that proves it. Um, and, but there was also the ideas of racial scientific uh, racism uh, that really got going at the same time. And out of all that ferment of ideas came these other ideas. And it's, it, it's you know, maybe even talk about how, how Goebbels got some idea, uh, Joseph Goebbels got some ideas from public opinion, uh, you know, from, from ideas that were in the United yeah. States. People don't realize how many of his ideas were, were part of the mix in America at the time that, yeah. that uh, he, he lived with. So I, I think that that's an important part to add. Yeah. So look, in, among those terms that kind of did a 180 degree flip mm-hmm. uh, was racial science becoming le racisme, racial mm-hmm. science being accused and undermined on scientific terms and moral terms as nothing more than racism. Mm -hmm. Because racial science at the time was very powerful. It took, uh, you know, uh, strength from Darwin and evolution. And so it simply seemed like it was true. Uh, In fact, when you look closely at it, it it wasn't at all necessarily true. Mm -hmm. And when people like Franz Boas attacked it on its own grounds, that's to say, did scientific disconfirming research, the thing started to crumble, and it started to seem clear that this justification of xenophobia, for instance, this justification of racial superiority, was all bigotry and bias. It was Mm -hmm. racism. Mm -hmm. That was a, a contest of ideas that, you know, you can see after World War I, is winning in a lot of countries. But, of course, we know it wasn't actually the right side of history for what was going to drive history, which was that in Germany, in fact, this notion that that racial science was an empty, uh, bloated uh, piece of bias was not at all accepted, Mm -hmm. uh, at least not by the right. And uh, it was not at all accepted that it wasn't absolutely correct that your... uh, political opponent was your enemy, mm-hmm. that politics, Carl Schmitt said, is a Nazi theorist, was the stranger is your enemy. That's just the nature of politics. Mm-hmm. This notion of xenophobia is a kind of ridiculous ethical construct. All nations organize around enemies, the stranger as the enemy, and they can be external or they can be internal. Mm-hmm. The Jews were an Asiatic colony in France and in, in Germany, they were considered like foreigners. And so it seemed like there was a quite a, a lot uh, of uh, impetus in Germany to reject all of these other ethical claims, which, you know, I think uh, really do come from people who had a framework that supported that. And that is to say liberalism with its notion of toleration and socialism with its notion of brotherhood that went beyond the nation state, Mm -hmm. both of those organized a bunch of folks who said, we see this as evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in fascist Germany, of course, we know it wasn't. And it wasn't until 1945 with the horror of the Holocaust that that idea of racial science was really put to rest, uh, at least uh, until recently. And uh, that the... uh it's also interesting that the socialists um, were tarred as being a Jewish idea and, and part of the enemy because it, they were an enemy to the idea of the scientific racism. Um, and so, yes. of course, they're going to see it back as, as you're the enemy. And so 
in addition to the Jews, they also uh, jail a lot of communists and socialists and, and other enemies of the state, so to speak. Um, exactly. So uh, one of the things that you talk about is, you, you back up a little bit, um, is uh, Benjamin Disraeli, uh, who was the prime minister in late 19th century in England. And he, he came from a family that was Jewish that had converted to Anglicanism. But he was the first Jewish prime minister in Britain, and, and Britain had its own issues uh, with Jewish. So I want to tell a little bit about his story and about how he uh, emerged well, well, out of I, that. Yeah, I don't write that much about Disraeli, but, but you know, one of the things that is uh, so interesting is you see these uh, kind of dynamic shifts in, in cultures. And, and Disraeli's election uh, as prime minister twice uh, was, you know, for many people, a kind of high point for Jewish assimilation uh, in, in England. He was, uh, he had uh, converted to Anglican, uh, the Anglican faith, but, you know, he, everyone knew, ha- had come from a Jewish family. Uh, and he was, started to be really attacked for that, uh, attacked for, you know, being uh, kind of, uh, you know, a, uh, a foreigner who had, had snuck into power uh, in England, and those attacks became quite vitriolic, uh, and uh, you know, presaged really a return, uh, a more uh, even more violent return of anti-Semitism uh, in England. So uh, you know, you see these moments that seem like uh, there are moments of assimilation and and new tolerance and plural pluralism, uh, sometimes yielding uh, a counter-revolution, if you will, a, a counterforce that can be quite uh, frightening. Well, uh, there was a lot of worry when uh, John Kennedy was running for president that because he was a Catholic, he wasn't going to be elected. Um, and there, maybe because of how he died and everything, there was no real reaction against Catholics later than that. Um, but when Barack Obama was elected, um, you, can, you can certainly make an argument that there was a significant reaction uh, to that fact um, and he, he reminds me of Disraeli in the fact that he was half white and half black. He was a, just like an Anglicanized Jew, but he still represented the, the stranger or the, the, the enemy to so many people that there's been a reaction. And uh, so it, we can't always count on that reaction coming, but it does seem that we've got some really deep issues here that, that uh, often relate to fear. I mean, it's a phobia but other underlying fears. It seems like in Germany there was a lot of fear for economy and everything when Hitler succeeded. Um, there was fear in America when uh, other uh, people have succeeded that have tapped those fears. So uh, you do have a big issue uh, of how you think we can solve this in, in the long run. I mean, you, you, you have yeah. one way to do it. So why don't you talk about that? Because I think, I think that's absolutely critical. Yeah. yeah. So look, I, I say in, in the end of the book, you know, historians don't solve problems, but if you can clarify terms and words, words are tools, and they're tools that we can work on problems with. And, and what I, I uh, end up saying is that xenophobia is a three-headed beast. Uh, it is something that has to do with identity and a fragility in identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's who's the stranger and who is not the stranger, right? Mm-hmm. There is something about fear. And as we know, fear leads to fight or flight. So that's also aggression. Mm-hmm. And there is something thirdly about groups and communities, because we know that xenophobic phenomenon often uh, 
populate in groups. Mm-hmm. So I say those are three things that we probably have to think about when we think about this thing, not just one thing, mm-hmm. not just like, you know, affective polarization. We need to think about identities and affects and groups. Now, what I end up uh, a saying is, you know, there are easier problems and there are harder problems. The easier problems, I say, let's not call that xenophobia. I call it other anxiety. Mm-hmm. And other anxiety is you know, the kind of thing you see from people who are startled by someone that they've never seen before, that is someone who speaks a foreign language. I say even it's just a, it's just a characteristic of being human. I don't know what's in your mind as I talk to you. I can't read your mind. You can't read mine. There is a frisson of, of anxiety about that, that we manage by dialogue and t- communication and mutual recognition. So at the very lowest end of the spectrum, it's an everyday thing. And a little bit up from that, it is, you know, a little bit of stranger anxiety, maybe hypercharged by cognitive stereotypes. All of that, I think, is very important. And I think it really can be addressed. We know that for people who are startled by foreigners and therefore don't like them, if you in the behaviorist terms, expose them and habituate them, mm-hmm. they're gonna, that's going to go away. What is exposure and habituate equal in political terms? It's desegregation. Mm-hmm. It's integration. Make them play on the same teams, put them in the same classes, put them on the, in the same uh, community boards, mm-hmm. and this stuff will start to melt away. We know that. For a good portion of, of people, that will work. Cognitive stereotypes, which we get from all around and, and, and you know, which, which uh, you know, Goebbels was very interested in, uh, can be changed through education. Uh, I'm speaking to Cal- someone in California. You know, Hollywood has, I think, been both the great purveyor of stereotypes and uh, has tried hard to undermine some of those stereotypes that they're more aware of. Mm-hmm. So we can unlearn stereotypes. Those things, I think, are pretty ameliorative. Uh, uh, they, they can be, they can be uh, uh, worked on. The deeper problem that I call the purest kind of xenophobia has to do with people who don't just passively take in stereotypes, but who want to hate, who need to hate another person, who need to have an outside group. Why? To stabilize themselves. Mm-hmm. That the notion of projection in this case is very helpful, that People who have shame and guilt feel cleansed by placing all of that on some minority, on some immigrant group, and therefore have a kind of clarity, a Manichaean clarity of I'm good, you're bad. Mm-hmm. I have no anxiety about myself. I'm anxious about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and that is a that is a uh, as we know from treating, you know, folks who have small p paranoia. I mean, they're not paranoid like schizophrenics, but the small p that all of us can find our way into, it's hard to change. There's no ambivalence. It's completely a certain place to hang out because it gives so much stability internally. Those people I call truly, those are the xenophobes. Mm -hmm. And those xenophobes, I think we have to think about in a multiplicity of ways to manage their, uh, uh, the, the result of their hatred. So there have to be very strong laws that protect the victims. Uh, but we also have to think about how we 
change these subcultures of shame. You know, what I said was like, what is the claim of white supremacy? But an obvious uh, symptom of white shame, of mm -hmm. subcultures of shame. And so if you don't think about that that way, um, you know, you don't, you don't go there to try to figure out, like, how are these people, despite the odious effect of their ways of managing this, amenable to some sort of, you know, uh, amelioration as well? And, you know, that's a complex problem that I, I try to sort through a number of uh, different models for how you do that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it, it, it is a problem that I have to say, I'm trying to clarify the problem, but I don't have all the answers to it. The uh, one thing we, you were just talking about there, if you go back 50 years, what somebody would say about white supremacy is uh, that you never forgive those you sin against, you know. And, and, and so you, you're the one who has committed the problem. And you, you went to your book about, I mean, there's, there's been said a lot recently. This isn't yeah. a black problem. This is a white problem. It's, it's you yeah. guys that have the problem, not us. Um, yeah. we, have a, we have a slightly different culture. It's almost not different from yours at all. We look slightly different. It's your problem, not our problem. Um, yeah. And I, I think that, that you, you make that point in the book very well, too. Yeah, look, I think that's the advantage of, of thinking about xenophobia. You know, I used to read when I started doing research, I would see it in these lists and people would say, you know, I'm against racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia. And then maybe they would ask, add xenophobia. And, and what I realized was actually xenophobia is an apple amongst oranges in that in those lists, mm -hmm. because all of those other names name the victimized group. And they're very important for that reason. Mm -hmm. We need to know who is going to be victimized. We need to protect those folks. But none of those words actually say what's going on with the victimizer, mm -hmm. who, after all, we know from sociology, often will flit around from one group to the other. They might hate Jews. They might hate blacks. It's not necessarily so intrinsic to their hatred. Mm -hmm. So xenophobia turns the lens to them. And, you know, there's a Harvard philosopher, Hosea Royce, who said in 1909, this is before Richard Wright said the same thing, and, and, and Sartre said the same thing about both blacks and Jews. He said, we talk about the yellow peril. We talk about the black problem in America. What about the white peril? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I want to be very clear. It, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, you know, a catchy turn of phrase. But I think we have to also break up the notion of white. Mm -hmm. White, you know, I argue, is mostly not being black in America. Mm -hmm. And white is an amorphous, strange concept. So white is, I think, way too big of a, a word. I would say subcultures of white shame. What mm -hmm. about them? Mm -hmm. Right? I, I, because I think that that's really focuses the problem uh, or in a way that doesn't simply talk about everyone uh, in, in, in a very loose way. You know, let's go back again to something else you mentioned uh, before about Hollywood and how, how Hollywood with its imagery. Um, and uh, you, you have a nice history, uh, which we can go into in a second, about, about how these images, when people realized that those images were going to be powerful and what they did. But um, I remember watching the movie Jurassic Park the first time and thinking yeah. everyone dies so that the white nuclear family can survive. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically what the story is, you know, and, and, and yeah. whether they're lawyers or they're uh, 
fat guys that do the computer work, every single person, it wasn't even racial, it was mostly every single person other than the white nuclear family gets eaten by the dinosaurs. And it, it also, that reminded me of the other version, which is alien movies, when some aliens come. Basically, it, it unites humanity, if, if it's a, a positively-based uh, movie, it unites humanity against them. Why? Because they're going to eat us. You know? If the aliens are here to eat us in one way or another, we have to stop them. And I find that, again, the same sort of thing, a projection, as you, as you go into, because we eat other animals on the planet, and, and, but we're the top predator. And if there's another top predator that would come along and eat us, then, then we'd be in the bad position because we don't like that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I was really interested in this. In the 20s, uh, people become super concerned that motion pictures could become the most powerful propaganda tool that mankind had ever had to encounter. Uh, and Walter Lippmann, who is the political journalist who coins the term stereotypes, taking it from a printing process, uh, he's seen how propaganda hyped up World War I. Uh, and he and others start to become very concerned that these stereotypes, these cognitive uh, uh, coins, if you will, can get passed out all around the uh, a community. They can become part of a communal way of thinking and, you know, boy, if you go see that movie, uh, that racist movie about uh, uh, black Americans, you leave with the notion that black men are like this and black women are like that. And if you don't really interact much with black folks, that notion just sits there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so uh, there were a, a number of people who used the notion of stereotype to critique film and to critique this extraordinarily powerful new way of uh, recreating reality, recreating experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find all of this very um, provocative because right now we're in a completely new world. Uh, this talk is an example of that. Mm-hmm. I'm in New York. Uh, you're in San Francisco. There are people from wherever. Uh, we encounter some of these uh, massive troubles with technological innovation that has not yet been mastered. Xenophobia is coined as a term when the world has spent 20 or 30 years globalizing, becoming flatter in a very asymmetric way. It was at the point of a gun, but it was Mm -hmm. tribes coming together. Uh, And, you know, what you see with the new technology was first telegraphs and then telephones and then motion pictures, that it pushes people together in a new way that they're not quite prepared for. Uh, you know, the digital world that we're in right now, I think, certainly has something to do with the recrudescence of uh, xenophobia and exactly what and exactly how. I leave it to others to sort out. I, I have a couple of ideas about that, but it's a very big issue. We need the people who are going to step up and start to think hard about what happens to the global community, what happens to the local community, and how do we manage the creation of outgroups uh, and the, the, the generation of xenophobic hatred uh, digitally and online, which, as we know, uh, has already, you know, uh, is already responsible for, for instance, a genocide. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that you talk about, in, in addition to the stereotypes from the 1920s, um, is the early cartoons also uh, went with these uh, images. And, and I, yeah. I find it interesting that cartoons have made their way out of children's fair and into adult fair 
Um, I mean, partially because they wanted to make the parents sit through the cartoon uh, so yeah. that the kids would watch it. But still, uh, and, and the extreme popularity of movies based on comic books um, at, at this point. I mean, they, they're, we understand why from an economic point of view. They're easy to sell in other countries because the dialogue is minimal and all that kind of stuff. But even so, there's something else there. These images, uh, the cartoonish kind of images of how life is, um, are stereotypes to give everybody an idea about how to deal with uh, these situations. And I, their, their popularity, I think, is one of the things that proves people don't think conceptually. They, they think in images. And, and that's, yeah. that's, that's what we're working with, and how do we deal with it. I thought yeah, it was interesting I, how, how you said three different people had very different reactions to Lippmann's idea about stereotype and used them in different ways. And to tell that story, that was, that was fascinating. Uh, the three people were... Were, were um, uh, Bernays and um, Goebbels and uh, the guy that started the first um, advertising... No, uh, Gallup, George Gallup. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that you, you're, um, you're pressing me since that's a small part of the book. But yeah. the point is that uh, once you recognize that people's minds were passive, that they would take this stuff in, you realize there was a great power in that. Mm-hmm. Now, Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, was also thinking perhaps of a more active mind, a mind that desired. But, you know, the notion that you could subliminally message people and sell them on things by essentially stimulating their stereotypes was one that led to modern advertising, was one that was clearly part of the thinking uh, for people working in Hollywood. And uh, yes, Joseph Goebbels picked up on that from Bernays and, uh, you know, was very, very um, interested in how he could use technology to uh, you know, rouse the masses. Uh, you know, the the famous uh, radio broadcasts of the Fuhrer were, uh, you know, coming to every kitchen. And that was part of the way that uh, he kept people stoked and angry and uh, obsessed with Jews. Uh, you know, did Twitter do the same thing in our recent uh, presidency? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, so, so all of those folks realize there is a, that this can be actually a very powerful, uh, almost hypnotic form of group control. And uh, yes, they used it differently. Some as critics, as uh, alarmed critics saying, hey, why is every advance in the movies from the cartoons to, sa- to sound to synchronize? Why is every one of them? involved with a stereotype, a negative stereotype of black Americans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you want to be super generous, you say, okay, well, they need stock characters. They can, you know, they, they, they can't give them too many lines. And some of these, it's their silence. So they don't have, they have to generate a huge amount of information with just an image. So they're banking on America's stereotypes. But I think a less generous view is they're also creating and reinforcing those stereotypes and it's not just a technical matter of like, how do I get uh, a stock character on stage and have him do his emotional work and get off? I think there are a lot of other ways of doing it. But one solution was, hey, we'll use these stereotypes. I think it's still a solution. Still a solution, yeah. The, uh, uh, and, and how people use these, this information, this, it's the whole question about when we have new ideas and, and new insights and how is it going to be used 
It can be yeah. used or abused or misused or used well. And the same yeah. time that Hitler was doing his radio broadcasts, uh, FDR was doing his fireside chats, yeah. uh, not to stoke anger, but to, to, to stoke confidence. Yeah, look, I, I think I, I say at one point in the book, you know, the notion that stereotypes were amenable to education and that you could educate folks out of uh, bigoted notions was in one way reassuring. Mm-hmm. But the flip side was that they could educate you, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it wasn't just a one-way street, mm-hmm. that this was going to be a battle of ideas, a battle of stereotypes, if you will, that if we're, the mind is so amenable to just taking in an idea from the outside and uncritically accepting it, then um, there's such a thing as mind control. So I don't think it's uh, irrelevant that at that very time, people became very, very alarmed about the capacity of our enemies to control, uh, to, 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 to engage in mind control. You know, at that point, the Cold War had started. Pavlov was supposed to have the key to this. Mm-hmm. And so the Pavlovian forces that had supposedly infiltrated the United States and were mind controlling a bunch of us became kind of a red scare trope mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, very much goes to we can make you hate whoever we want to make you hate. Now, uh, from a personal point of view, you're, you're uh, a psychiatrist, right? Yeah. Right. So, so all these ideas and the fears and dealing with fears, I mean, is obviously something that you do on an individual level with, with uh, patients. And, and how, how do you, did you learn something from going through this history that makes it easier to deal with your patients or, or be more helpful? You know, I think the thing it reinforced is uh, the, the notion that we all have unconscious biases and that uh, the idea that we are in some way uh, perfected and don't have any is usually a denial, that, that we live in a culture filled with a trillion different ideas, filled with a bunch of different overwhelming subjective experiences and realities. And we, as Daniel Kahneman would say, you know, in his notion of fast thinking, we, we engage in fast thinking about who is that and what's what's up with them. And unless we really are self-critical and think about those things and explore them a little bit, they'll simply operate upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think my psychiatric training really helped me write the book more than the other way around mm-hmm. because the first half of the book is the history of the term. It's really the political and ethical story of how xenophobia starts off as a racist term and then folds back into an ethical term uh, in the West. The second part of the book is about how did people try to explain what this was? What were the causal models? Mm -hmm. And that's after, of course, racial science has collapsed. That's mostly a psychological and a sociological endeavor. And because I've been thinking about those things for 30 years, I think it helped me weave through what was minor and what was major as Mm -hmm. a kind of paradigm for what was going on here. So there might be some people who quibble with me about who I left out. I had to, of course, leave out a lot of people. But I I was fairly confident about the major paradigms because, in fact, uh, it's something that organizes my thinking about patients. It's something that organizes my thinking about what what presently uh, organizes psychiatry. So uh, I was, I think... um, for better or for worse, very much uh, indebted to my psychiatric training for that part of the book. I found it interesting that some of the first pushback, as you say, at the, uh, right around the same time, 1900, when the Boxer Rebellion was going on, um, 
came from novelists, three novelists. You know, you mentioned yeah. Tol Tolstoy, Twain, and, and Conrad, Joseph Conrad. Um, yeah. That they were people who obviously, when you're a novelist, you get inside the heads of other people or try to so that you can make the real characters. And they were all able to get inside the head of the stranger um, and, and say, and I know from Twain's point of view on Boxer Rebellion, he said, you know, you, we've, they're learning from us. You know, we're not, <laughs> they, they know what we just did to them, and now they're, they're pushing back, and they're going to learn everything that we just taught them, how to be cruel, how to use weapons, et cetera, et cetera. And just, just wait, because yeah. that's the society, that, that Chinese society has been the one that has dominated the planet more often in the last 3,000 years than any other culture, so at least yeah. in Asia. So. Two, two interesting points there. One is, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, the vanguard, interestingly, involved uh, some journalists and some very prominent writers, uh, Twain, Tolstoy, Conrad. Uh, and uh, yeah, it made me think about why that was so. Uh, and, and I think that some literary critics would agree that one of the moral functions of fiction uh, is to bring you on the page together with someone who is potentially very, very far away from your origins mm -hmm. and to have you deeply immerse, uh, immerse yourself in their experience so that Tolstoy attacked the czar, mm -hmm. uh, Twain attacked American imperialism, Conrad attacked uh, uh, you know, Western imperialism broadly, the British, the French, the German, the Russians. Uh, and so these people were, uh, you know, uh, kind of, you know, town criers who went around saying what we're doing here is morally uh, not only unjustified, uh, it's hideous. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a brave thing to do. And when you're part of the same herd. Uh, so I think that there's something very important about about what the, those writers did and how they, uh, you know, became part of this lineage really of uh, people who gave courage to other people. Because, you know, one of the things that I found was Las Casas is this guy from, you know, uh, early modern period. Well, when Joseph Conrad re meets Roger Caseman, who's come back from the Belgian Congo, what does he say to his wife? This guy's like a new, new Las Casas. Mm -hmm. And when Lemkin coins the term genocide after 41 of his family uh, have been killed in the Holocaust, and he's fighting and fighting to get this term genocide accepted. Uh, he writes a lineage that involves Las Casas and Montaigne and these other figures who give him strength to continue the fight that that he then is uh, basically uh, uh, committed to uh, full force. So I think it's important for us to know about that lineage and for us to know about that, that you know, kind of... Uh, that struggle being not a new one, mm -hmm. uh, but an old one. And that, you know, the very concept of xenophobia is a, uh, an achievement. You know, as mm -hmm. you say, the, the, the equation of stranger and enemy is very, very, very old. Uh, the notion that that is unnecessary, that it's phobic, that it involves, uh, you know, uh, distortions of reality, uh, that's relatively new. And thank God we have it. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't you go into a little more detail about Lemkin? Because uh, one of the things I found interesting about that story was he wanted that one word. He wanted something that would express how bad this was. He invented the word, and then he worked hard, worked very hard, it sounds like, 
to make that word part of the vocabulary used for these issues. And people yes. don't realize, think that the I, words just, you know, wander into the, into the cultural conversation and stay there. But that's not, that's not what often happens. So uh, that's an interesting story. Yes, no, it is. It's a moving story. Lemkin is a Polish Jew who is a lawyer, and uh, he, at a very young age, you know, witnessed anti-Semitic brutality and became quite obsessed with uh, minorities and what would happen to them in majority countries. The Albigensians in France, mm-hmm. Christians in Rome, you know, he would ask his mother, like, why didn't they call the police? Right. And his mother was like, they were the police. Mm-hmm. So... He started to recognize as a human rights lawyer early on in the 30s, there was no actual term. There was no crime of massacring a minority in your own country. It wasn't a war crime because you weren't at war. Mm -hmm. And there simply wasn't a concept for what was, for instance, the Ottomans were doing to the Armenians. Mm -hmm. And so he became very uh, con- uh, uh, concerned about this and started to advocate for different terms. What do we call it when a majority group tries to wipe out a people and their culture? He wanted a word for it. He ultimately settled on genocide precisely when genocide was happening to his family. Mm-hmm. And he fought, 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 and was relentless in trying to get the UN to accept this and accept a uh, on the, in their, in their uh, bodies of law, a, a set of rules about genocide. Mm-hmm. And he was successful. So that the word genocide actually in the, was, was uh, codified in, into, in the UN. Uh, and, you know, what others have found shocking and, and asked me about as well is like, wow, I didn't realize we in the United States didn't actually approve that. The Senate did not approve Mm-hmm. the uh, Genocide Convention in the UN, uh, and why? And I had to say, well, the Southern senators were really afraid it'd be used against us and what we had done to black people. Mm-hmm. So that's a rather, you know, sad uh, end of this story. But Lemkin was successful. Uh, we now have a way of thinking about it. We now have human rights organizations that work very hard and are very, um, you know, focused on this thing that was kind of an atrocity with no name, as, as, uh, as uh, Winston Churchill called it. Yeah, it's interesting because if you go back to the 19th century in America, there was a positive manifest destiny idea. That that's, it had a name. Uh, but the other side was it, it, it created the genocide of the Native Americans. And, and uh, so we, we really don't, we really need words uh, to express this because people can say, oh, that's happening, but they don't see it as a big issue and they don't see it as a movement. They see Manifest Destiny as a movement, but they don't see, you know, the, the clearing of the land, uh, yes. basically, as, as an issue. Yeah, look, I think that was part of the, uh, the impetus to write the book, that it, words are tools. Mm-hmm. We need them to do things. And if they're muddied, if they're unclear, if we don't know where they come from, if they mean many things, some of them contradictory, they're not very effective tools. Mm-hmm. So one, one of the challenges of this book was to try to clarify xenophobia, clarify what components uh, made up xenophobia, clarify what kind of ideas have emerged from some of the greatest thinkers in the last 50 years about what causes it and what we can do about it. And then hope that that allows people to use those tools to move forward 
uh, in trying to conquer some of these problems. You mentioned Sartre, uh, of course, in your book, uh, and uh, and uh, his his circle of, of thinkers. And, uh, you know, people think of existentialism as a sort of a depressing uh, idea that came out of World War II and the Depression and so on and so forth. Uh, but, but it was much more than that, obviously. Um, so why don't you say how, how it had a, a, an impact on this, this argument about xenophobia? Yeah. So uh, Sartre, you know, uh, takes up a notion from Hegel and that is the notion of this kind of struggle between the I and the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this attempt to uh, dominate, reify, make into a thing the other. Uh, and that becomes this kind of tool by which he starts to look at anti-Semitism in France. Uh, but then, you know, actually the most influential uh, use of this term was Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, where she says, actually, this is what's happened, not just to, they had their cast of characters. They would talk about black Americans uh, and they would talk about Jews. And sometimes they would talk about Arab women. Mm-hmm. And then she says in this, you know, fantastic addition to this string and all women. Mm-hmm. And you see her kind of almost, you see the light bulb almost going off in her head when she writes this sentence mm-hmm. Black Americans, European Jews, Arab women, all women. Mm -hmm. She writes this book that says, wow, there is this kind of oppression that is so old that it is almost invisible. And it is about the othering of women, the making them into a kind of thing, into a kind of stranger. So that comes really out of Sartre. And the other big, big... uh, uh, influence of Sartre was uh, was uh, colonialism. Like he really uh, lit a fire in a number of colo- French colonies, where uh, it was quite clear that when he talked about this battle between the I and the other, that the colonized people would, were the other. So a lot of uh, post-colonial thinkers, uh, radicals, politicians looked to Sartre for uh, kind of a framework to understand what was happening to them, what had happened to them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I write about that uh, rather extensively. Yeah. Uh, a lot of great details for those who read the book. Um, so there you, you, you talk about how the only kind of way to deal with this uh, on a big scale is radical egalitarianism that we accepted. You, you mentioned Michael Foucault uh, and his attitude towards when you talk about the other as deviant. And in a way, if you just look at all the different cultures and subcultures of humanity, we can say, you know, uh, that group is, is, is too misogynistic or that group is too, um, you know, liberal or that group is too sexy or that group is too this. It's always something too, but it's, it's, it's much more overlapping than it is too. And uh, it seems that the way forward, if we're going to get to democracy, um, you know, because we, we're kind of, kind of pretending at it right now, <laughs> Uh, but, but if we really get to democracy is that all individuals are considered, you know, and, and their way of pursuing happiness, their way of living is fine as long as it's within a certain range. Now, what kind of range is that? Um, yeah. and, and, and you can you can say, of course, the main thing would be if you violate somebody else's will in pursuit of happiness, you know, through murder or rape or theft. Of course, we can't allow that at the same time as we allow everybody else to try to pursue it. So there are some lines that do need to be drawn. Um, 
Yeah. But we draw all kinds of lines that aren't needed. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I don't want to be up here and, and like, you know, uh, advocate for Kumbaya. Like, we yeah. are need to think in real terms about um, how to make the problem somewhat better. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I think that politically, there are two, you know, kind of uh, pillars that you can take up. If you're a liberal, you believe in toleration. Mm -hmm. You recognize that um, toleration is critical even when you don't like the ideas that you're tolerating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the famous Karl Popper's paradox of toleration is it has a limit. The limit is you shouldn't have to tolerate people who would destroy toleration, right? He's like, <laughs> we're not going to tolerate the Nazis. Everything else we have to tolerate. Um, you know, for socialists, it's equality, it's brotherhood. And I think that, you know, you don't have to be a socialist to believe that thinking about humans with their cultural differences, with their capacities for technology, with their different kinds of, of, of uh, subjective uh, uh, flavors, as, as radically equal is a, a project that we all will struggle against and fail against. We all have our unconscious biases. But if we have that point of reference, it keeps pulling us back from going too far on that. And so that's a way of thinking about both politically and ethically how we can check ourselves. But, you know, I go through um, some of these psychological models in a way to, to, to help us all recognize ourselves, right? If you, mm -hmm. you know, the first model is, you know, you, of a trauma, like, uh, you know, someone from a different race scared you and forever since you've been scared of them. Well, go play baseball with them. You won't mm -hmm. be so scared. Go read a novel about what their lives are like. Maybe you'll be a little less scared. We know that that works. There's a wonderful study that showed that uh, people who are trans knocking on doors and talking to people for like 15 minutes significantly decreases those people's phobia of trans folks. Mm -hmm. So we know that that works. Stereotypes, you know, again, fast thinking uses stereotypes. So getting rid of stereotypes, not going to happen. Getting rid of toxic, negative stereotypes about minorities, got to happen. <laughs> we can work on that, yeah. you know, because, in fact, most people who have negative views of other groups, you know, as this one sociologist found, Emery Bergardus, they haven't been traumatized. They might have even never met the group. Right. They don't they don't know anybody from the group, but they hate them. So where does that come from? We've got to work on cognitive stereotypes. And then we have these deeper problems of people who, you know, uh, have stabilized themselves with hatred. And the final part is the structural part, the part that's become such a hot potato in, uh, you know, on Fox News and whatever critical race theory. Critical race theory is if it's appro appropriately uh, used is about. It's about structures. It's about it's about institutions. It's about customs. It's about laws. It's nothing that really you should be teaching kids who are under the age of twelve. It's a graduate series of courses for people to become informed about and pry open mm -hmm. some of the assumptions that guide our laws. Mm -hmm. Do they lead to un unequal outcomes? That has to be a part of the, the solution as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's a three-part problem and there's a three-part solution. And if we don't mush them all together, we'll start to realize that we can make progress on these things. 
Yeah, and critical race theory, the last point that you were making, I mean, the government is theoretically supposed to make a level playing field. And when people point out, well, it might look level to you, but it doesn't look level to us. And this is the reason why. Um, and, and those observations are needed for us to get a democracy with a real level or at least a somewhat more level play, uh, playing field. Could you exactly. read something from the from the from the end oh. of your book? Um, you know, because oh, sure. I thought that was another great way to summarize the, what you were doing. Um, sure. So um, thank you for that. Uh, so I, I finished the book uh, and the book involves a framing narrator. Uh, my, the first part of the book is about my family immigrating to the United States from Lebanon. And so the, the coda of the book, I finished the book and uh, I'm in a small rural village in France where my wife grew up. The village is right on the border of Spain in the Pyrenees. And so it is a village filled with exiles, mm -hmm. uh, many of them uh, from Franco and uh, Franco's fascist regime. Uh, they walked over those mountains, the Pyrenees, and settled in our village. Um, but the Pyrenees right there where we are was also famous for uh, people fleeing in the reverse direction, that Jews and uh, others fled the Nazis by hiking through these mountains. Uh, and there is a famous trail that I had never done, and so I finished this book and I asked my wife if we could try to go on the trail. The trail was uh, the last kind of uh, uh, day uh, of day or two of Walter Benjamin's life. One of my heroes, Walter Benjamin, the writer, had taken this path uh, to escape uh, Nazism and escape into Spain and Portugal, had been captured at the border, and uh, while being held in a hotel about to be sent back to the Gestapo, uh, committed suicide. He carried with him uh, an attache case, which seemed ludicrous because he was huffing and puffing and people told him to drop it, but he told them that what was in it was more valuable than his life. Mm -hmm. So the story of Walter Benjamin's flight is famous and it has long haunted me. Did this brilliant wanderer, this European flaneur, know that in the end he would become mythic as a man on the run, as Zenos turned away crushed by cool legalisms enforced at foreign ports and borders? In his final despair, did he know his story would be rewritten backward so that this hike would become a tourist destination and his spirit would forever linger in dingy Porbu? And what of his briefcase? What was in it? Many have speculated, but I think the simple answer is hope. That leather bag contained Walter Benjamin's last appeal, it was what remained of a trembling, failing trust that perhaps his voice might vault over the highest walls of hatred to far off, perhaps quite foreign beings who might join with him over those pages. Sometimes I imagine that if one stumbled upon that dusty valise and pried it open, as in the Thousand and One Nights, it would release the roaring voices of history's refugees and exiles all their lamentations, their laughter and their stories, all their accusations and confessions, all freed from oblivion together in a waterfall of sound so grand, so sublime, that for an instant it would stop everything, even time. History is a trip into the spirit world. It is an attempt to wake the graveyard and give our ancestors voice and form so that we can confront them and free ourselves from their spells. History at its best then 
carries the hope not only of resurrection, but of exorcism. It holds the desire that by remembering, we will not repeat. Of fear and strangers has been my attempt to remember for myself, for you. Xenophobia is not some antiquated classical term. It is our word. We have a name for what is happening to us, what has been growing in scope, flashing red, spreading. The only questions are how extreme will it become? What forms will it take? Who will it target? And who will stand to oppose it? This hatred will not end of its own accord. This is our catastrophe. That poet who once grilled me about my history, himself descended from enslaved people, wrote that, quote, nightmare begins responsibility. That responsibility, I know now, to ourselves, to each other, is not just to wake up, but to remember it all when we do. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks. Um, we have a question uh, from the audience. Uh, Dave Hildebrandt, um, please speak to the ironic role of religion in fomenting xenophobia. Um, yeah, it is an ironic role because uh, it is uh, both uh, uh, a fomenter, right? There was, uh, if you look at, at the, the Christian wars, uh, the 40-year war, that was the kind of experience that led to the liberal notion of toleration. That was one sect uh, uh, making another strange when they were a little bit of a different branch of Christianity and then going to war, an endless war. Who was on God's side? Apparently, uh, you know, no one. They all killed each other. Uh, the Spanish, you see the role of the church as a little bit more bifurcated. On the one hand, there are uh, people who very much uh, enslave the native people uh, and get justification from their notions of Christianity. And at the same time, the first revolt against them was from Dominicans who said, actually, you Spaniards are not Christians. We refuse to give you um, uh, communion, uh, and you're, you are acting like devils. Uh, so you see this thing that is uh, can be can be uh, twisted to both justify occupation and uh, enslavement or the opposite uh, uh, and that was the way that las casas took it in the opposite direction so religion has traditionally been uh very dangerous in the public square i'm all for religion in private life and i think it's very dangerous as a matter of uh uh, public identity. Well, let's finish this up where you started with a, a very interesting uh, idea where you said that the person who first had the idea about projection or, or something that had to do with strangers, what we project onto strangers, was Xenophon. Um, and uh, Xenophon's name starts off with Xeno. That's like xenophobia. Yeah. So he must have been a stranger given that name. I assume. Uh, good, good point. He was a wanderer, but his his notion of projection was exactly the opposite of the notion that we use today for xenophobia. His notion of projection was, "I'm the same as you," mm -hmm. and that's a way of maybe even talking about projection as the core of empathy. Mm -hmm. It's about commonality that he saw with others. What Freud does, and he says, he, he, Freud unfortunately uses the term in both ways, but the novel way that Freud uses the term is. 
It's actually, I make you everything I hate about myself. You mm-hmm. are the not me. And that's really what drives uh, not empathy, but xenophobia. Yeah, and you, you mentioned how the authoritarian personality and, 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 and parenting uh, causes this in, in children, you know, and, and the, the, they have to admire the parent, and therefore everything is perfect about the parent, so they have to find somebody to blame for all the feelings of, of discomfort and everything. But yes. it's, a, it's a long road to democracy and the egalitarian democracy that, that we're talking about, and it, clearly there's lots of people on, on that side of the equation. There's lots of people still uncomfortable with that whole idea and consider that the enemy to that feeling of comfort they can get from the authoritarianism. Um, and I, I, I sum that up by saying... Uh, let he who is without authoritarianism cast the first drone. <laughs> okay. Because we, we, we really, you know, we, we, we're, we're trying to get to democracy, um, but we're all, yeah. we're all afflicted with authoritarianism uh, for lots of different reasons. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And when you start looking at it that way, you start to dive a little bit more into the details. I don't like getting caught up in the word authoritarian and authoritarianism. Mm. Adorno's great book, which is a thousand pages, hmm. uh, you know, they put a great deal of stock in uh, an authoritarian personality, which you described well. Hmm. Authoritarian parents lead to kids who admire authoritarians and in a displaced way project all of their weak uh, sense of uh, having been crushed by an authoritarian onto some other group. It's an elegant model, and I think it's a very important model. Uh, and uh, I think it goes much further than we see in some of the recent spate of books on authoritarianism that simply think of it as a thing. Hmm. We need to open it up and understand what's inside the box. Yeah. More details are always useful. There's a spectrum, not a not a, a black and white, which is why we're all across the spectrum. And, and uh, yeah. when, when we, we do it to ourselves with our split in our country, and the interesting uh, thing about that split is that there's a very large number of people in the majority in the middle. You know, and and uh, and we have we have created this split politically, uh, and both parties are responsible by gerrymandering and making the uh, the elections based upon the primaries, which causes extremists to to win. We we, we do these things to ourselves, um, and not intentionally, just because we like to win, <laughs> and come up with a strategy that wins in the short term and and uh, causes problems in the long term. But this. This was a win in both the long term and the short term. Thank you very much for joining us, George. That was, it's a great book, very interesting. Uh, I hope many of you enjoy it. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.